I'm Anahid, award-winning U.S. and European certified floral designer, entrepreneur, and your host to Viva La Floral Live podcast. If you are a florist, floral farmer, floral business owner, or simply a floral enthusiast, you are in the right place, my friend. We help you by providing insights through industry professionals, their stories, and useful tips. We bring you the art and business of flowers. Welcome to the show. Welcome back to Viva La Flora Live podcast. So today is we're airing our second episode of 2022 and a very different episode. If you landed here and you haven't listened to the one prior to this, I would highly recommend you to go back, listen to the other episode first and then come back. Okay. And then if you want to come back, come back, right? If you're like, you know, I'm here, might as well, sure, stick around. Today, we're not going to talk about flowers. We're not going to talk about business. We're going to talk about people. We're going to talk about humanity from the lens of Armenian nation. And my guest today is a British documentarian, British war documentarian, um, Emil Gishin. And I was ecstatic when he said yes to my offer to, can I talk to you? Can you talk to my audience about this movie that he created about the war that broke out in Armenia between Armenia and Azerbaijan in September of 2020? So this was this is not a typical episode that I would do, but it was it is really important and really personal to me. So I'm gonna stop talking and introduce you to Emil and let's chat. And one other thing, be sure to check out the show notes. I'll have the documentary information there where you can watch it, including the trailer as well as some podcast episodes perhaps you should listen to. And if you are curious about it and some movies you can watch that, you know, might shed some light to who Armenian nation and Armenian people are. And you're like, why this? Well, if you didn't know, I am Armenian. Without with further ado, here's Emil. Welcome back, Emil. I'm very, Hello. very excited. Yes. Hi. This is probably one of the most personal episodes, in all honesty, because... None of the things that we're about to chat about has anything to do with my audience or the platform and so on, right? But it has everything to do with me, who I am and my heritage and history and so on. So, you know, when I saw your documentary come out, I, of course, was so happy and excited, felt fortunate that I was able to go in DC and watch this, you know, live on screen. And it was so beautifully done. I was left speechless and hopeful and amongst many other feelings that just came out of that movie, honestly, and really couldn't resist but to ask to to talk to you about this and bring this story to the surface. Because as you've said in the film as well, it has been such a unspoken event, essentially. But before we get there, you know, of course, I read your a little bit about you and your bio and why we're here today. But let's kind of dive in a little bit about you. You know, you were in a military right? In a British military, you fought wars and then you decided to report on those. Why? Why such yeah. a drastic change? So I served 12 years as a British War Marine Commando fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan. I was one of the first troops into Afghanistan looking for bin Laden and closing down Al-Qaeda training camps and then invasion of Iraq 2003. And then the Brits, we got very busy in Afghanistan in Helmand province. So throughout my whole military career, it was pretty much operations. And it was very kinetic, very war fighting operations, especially as a commando that we were doing. And then I left after 12 years. And then I decided there was a, I met a guy in a bar who was going out to fight Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. And I just thought, this sounds like a brilliant idea. My father's Syrian. I'm British. Um, he's a Christian Syrian. And I thought, why does this guy want to go fight? I don't want to go fight in Syria against Islamic State, but this guy does. And from there, I just went on eBay, bought a camera. And then for two and a half years, I was going back and forth to the Middle East, filming these volunteer fighters from Britain and America and Canada and Australia. And what motivated them to go fight with the Kurds? Mm -hmm. uh, so then that was my transition into films, a passion of telling stories to go. If there's, if there's a subject I don't know, I, I'm the sort of guy who will sit there on Google finding out if we're having a conversation, I'd have to know what we're talking about. So when it comes to what's going on with wars, if I don't know, I now just end up going to the war zone to find out firsthand what's going on. And that was my first documentary called Robin Hood Complex, The Fight Against Islamic State. And then Robin, I've done the second one in the series, Robin Hood Complex, Europe's Forgotten War about the war in Ukraine. And then in September 20, um, 2020, the war in Artsakh, Nagorno-Karabakh between Armenia and Azerbaijan, um, 
once again, I, I knew little information about it. And then I just, I saw it going, the war going online on Twitter. It was, there was a lot of content online of drone warfare and stuff. So I decided to pack my bag and fly out to that region. And that's what I've been working on for the last 14 months, documentary called 45 Days to Fight for a Nation, which is a human perspective of the war told through the Armenian side. And yeah, like saying, we, we'd done a tour across America where we, where we started in Armenia with the documentary and then we moved to America. We've done the West Coast, East Coast and Canada. And then last week or the week before, so just finished in London. So we've been touring with it and currently we're in the running for the 2022 Academy Awards at Oscars. But by the time this goes out, we might, we'll probably know if we're in or not to the final 15. Right. And is now we should be finding out next week if we're in the last 15, which is fingers crossed. Yeah, hopefully. Well, it almost sounds like to me, there was this element of, I know what this feels like. I have to get out there and share the stories that are happening. Cause you know, we see the war, you know, our civilians, right. Through the media or how it's being portrayed, but we don't really know in truth or in reality what really goes on and then what the aftermath looks like for those people when they come home afterwards too, you know, so there's just a lot going on, you know, on mental, psychological, physical. I mean, it's just so many layers to this. I think I've said this to you initially when we started, you know, why I want to record this is it is entirely too personal for me, not because I'm Armenian, but my dad volunteered as a fighter in 1992, you know, when Armenia got independent from Soviet Russian Federation, you know, and so on. And of course, um, the uprising of that war between Azerbaijan and Armenia over the same land that this war happened in 2020, right? He was gone for almost uh, 14 months, 13 and a half to be exact, where at the time, no cell phones, no media, none of that connection, which we didn't know if it was dead or alive kind of thing, you know? Yes. And my both maternal and paternal grand-grandparents, grand-grandmothers are actually genocide survivors, as in they were one of those children who got displaced during the genocide and marched on foot and so on. And my own personal mom side and dad side, grandparents in 1992 got displaced from their own homes as well. And again, marched through forests at the time for survival. So entirely too close and too personal, you know, and in the 29th, this one that just the most recent one, my brother basically was enlisted and online to go and to drive tanks because that's what he did when he was in the military. And fortunately, it all came to a screeching halt and stopped suddenly right? And he ended up not going, which I was happy about. It was kind of a bittersweet ending, right? For for the nation. With all of that said, actually, one of the things that you did really well in that film was the silver lining of it all, the human side and the ending of it all, right? Armenia lost this war, but does that mean that this is the end of it all? Does that mean this is the end of the world for, for the nation? It's not. And Yeah. So the war lasted 44 days and the documentary- right. 45 days because it's not just the war we cover we cover what happened after the war because that was very impactful and mm-hmm. the trilateral peace agreement between Azerbaijan Armenia and Russia was signed on the late on the 44th days and on the 45th is that's when Russian peacekeepers moved into the region of Artsakh to take over and really that was the changing of history for Armenia so really the 45th day which we talk about in the documentary is the most important day for the future of Armenia mm-hmm. um and yeah, like you were saying there, young men were signed up. So martial law, martial law is where the government implements um, that men between the age of 18 and 50 go off to join the army to go fight because they need the manpower. Martial law was declared in September the 27th. And you had many young boys. Like I said, I served for 12 years as a commando, a very highly trained soldier. And then you had these young boys that were working in shops, who were taxi drivers or just random jobs, bank managers, mechanics. And then mm. on 27th of September, were enlisted into the army. By the 28th, the, some of them were sat on the front lines with weapons and uniforms, not having a clue how to strip a weapon down, how to fight. And really, that was it, because Armenia is a small country. But there's a lot of people that dispute how what the population, but it's between two to three million, I'd say. So it's a very mm-hmm. small population. And they needed the manpower because they were under attack from Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan had the support of NATO member Turkey, which is the second largest army in the world, second to USA. Um well, not in the world, sorry, in NATO. And um, so, yeah, it was really much a fight for existence for the Armenians who have been constantly under attack from Azerbaijan, constantly under threat from Turkey. 
people felt it was their duty that they had to go to the front line and fight. And it was some of these guys just weren't prepared for that at all. And the, like I mentioned earlier about the drone warfare, is very much that the Armenian military is still fighting as though they were fighting in the 90s. That's true. Had the tech, the technology, um, their tactics. Wherefore, Azerbaijan, with the support of Turkey, were fighting more NATO with better equipment, better training. So very much it was a day, as I say in the documentary, a David versus Goliath kind of um, war, especially with the drone warfare, because the drones were used very effectively. And I've spent my whole adult um, life in war zones, and um, but this war was very different with the drones because the drones were cheaper scale drones and a lot of them were kamikaze drones which were mm. given, sold to them by Israel and Turkey and a lot of these drones would just circle in the sky for eight nine hours just circling as a drone as a camera and then all it would do was some guy thousands of miles away would switch a button and turn that drone into a missile and then it would just sit in there and it would just nosedive onto its target and um, so these were very effective um not just militarily on the battlefield, but the psychological effect of the drones in this world. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so I was filming stories with the soldiers and civilians that were displaced, displaced. A lot of the civilians had left as soon as the bombing started. They rallied quickly to get them out of the region. Mm-hmm. But some families had nowhere to go. They were like, where do we go? So a lot of them were living underground. Um, there was... In the documentary, we do a short scene of some of the families under their underground in bunkers with children as well. And it's just like, and you speak to them, it's like, when you when do you think this war's going to end? They're like, we don't know. We're just going to be here, bombing, being bombed until we're told the bombing stopped and we can return to our homes. So yeah, right. the documentary focuses on the human aspect. Um, and like I said, I, I spent a lot of time in war zones, and the actual fighting the bullets and the bombs for me isn't isn't exciting. And, t- and how do you tell a story? How do you raise awareness to what's going on? That's told for the human cost and the human side. Because in order for an international audience to go, why do I want to watch this documentary about a war? You need to be able to relate it to the humans and go, actually, well, that could have been that's the same story that happened in Lebanon. That's what's happened in um, the former Yugoslavia. That's what's happened um, in Iraq, in Syria. So people can relate to it. And that's why with all my documentaries, I do focus on the human aspect of it. Mm hmm. And, and you did. I mean, it, there's a lot to unpack in what you just said. I think one of the things that stood out for me is it's kind of a little bit ironic to to think that Armenia is fighting a war with Turkey, essentially, really, by weapons provided with Israel. So, you know, survivors of genocide are fighting mm. people who caused the genocide by the weapons provided Holocaust survivors. It's like, that's, that's hard. Yeah, that's <laughs> on the flip side is what happened in 1915 is very different to what happened. Oh, Turkey, for sure. Turkey is a different country to what it is there. You, yeah. I, I, I know a lot of Armenians always relate it back to the genocide, but the new age Turkey, of course, their agenda is very, they deny that the genocide happens. Sure. Uh, they also spend a lot of money. The, the Turk spends probably more money in their, their propaganda, their disinformation campaign on how to deny the genocide than Armenia actually spends on its military. That's how effective their campaign is to deny the genocide. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the Turkey is a very different Turkey to what it is back in the day there. But yeah, and this is and this is why these stories are very important, is, is one of the scenes where after the war, so Azerbaijan took some land in Artsakh and then in the peace agreement, the trilateral peace agreement, they Armenia had to surrender other territories of, the, of Artsakh. So civilians who lived in this region were told, you've got like two weeks, pack your home up and go. Right. And a lot of these civilians were like, where do we go? We've got nowhere to go. This is our home. We've lived here for years. Why, where are we going to go? And the government were like, simple as go. Um, and we've got some beautiful scenes of that happening, of people burning their homes down, people packing up. Um, it was just a very emotional time, um, casualties of war as such. And as a filmmaker, like you talk, you talk about the 1915 genocide and people deny it ever happened. When I'm filming these scenes, I'm going, this is documenting history. Is yes. that I'm saying I'm the only person that filmed anything. But um, the fact is that we're there documenting and years to come and people go, well, that didn't happen. We didn't displace people from their lands. We didn't force them off their lands. We go, we go, actually... Here we go. Here's a, here's an art form. Here's a documentary that right. shows that, that actually happens. I think that's why I've gone from being in the military to making documentaries is, is reporting history. So then, so if people do deny it and go, well, actually, no, we actually got evidence that this happened, and here it is, right. and here's a, here's a first-hand testimony of some guy. And maybe if in 1915 during the Armenian genocide, if more people had documented it, there would be less reason for the Turks and other nations to deny it ever happened. Sure, sure. That's why oh. the art. That's why the arts is very important. And I come under a lot of criticism from people, especially a lot of them Armenian, 
who go, why, why are people supporting this project? Why would people donate to, I mean, right. why would you, it's a documentary. We need to be sending money to the soldiers rather than to making documentaries. And it's like the art form is more powerful than a gun. And knowing that is since the maker of this documentary and the tour we've done, we're seeing more non-Armenians turn up. We've had a lot of people of influence watch this documentary, lots of politicians, a lot of people that have sway, that can lobby. Um, and they've seen it and they go, what is going on here? Even in um, San Diego, we had a district attorney turn up who was like amazed that there's Armenian prisons of war still being held by Azerbaijan. And she even turns around and she goes, I'm going to now work on securing the release of these men. Why are these men still being held a year after the war's ended? That's more. That's worth more money than anything else. When you've got people like that who awareness to go, I didn't know that was happening. I'm right. now going to that, I just had goosebumps for you when you said that. Actually, that that's, that's fantastic. And I, I here's the um, interesting thing you just said. You know, a lot of Armenians were upset about it, right? Why are we not supporting the war? Why are we supporting the movie and things like that? And not seeing the value in that potentially documentary you've made. Personally, I don't think it was just for the world to see and the awareness and uh, the history. Of course, the power of that, it's exponential. I do think every single skeptical Armenian should really watch this documentary as well. And the reason for that is, I personally, I, I am Armenian through and through. I mean, I was born and grew up in Armenia. I guess I've spent my most of my adult life in the United States, um, but I finished college in Armenia. You know, I still am very ingrained in the culture. And I do know this, there are a lot of people in Armenia that thought that this, this, you know, the agreement that was signed was wrong. We still needed to fight, which how many more lives do we want to lose? And they thought that this is the end of the world right now. We all just need to gung-ho, go and fight and everything else. And none of them took a second to step back from it and look at it from outside in for a minute. They're entirely too close. I have a few friends like that who are in the United States and are all upset and up in arms about this. And yes, those are the ones that you're talking about that were kind of upset about it, right? And why why the film? Why invest into this where we can yeah. do this, right? And I'm like, well, you know, um, that's because you really maybe have haven't quite figured out why we're actually fighting. Yeah, and knowing that, as I'll say, that these people that say that never set foot in a war zone in their whole life. Yes. It's quite easy to yes. sit on your armchair. And I, 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 I'm I, very vocal, very outspoken when it comes to this. I go a lot of head-to-head with some of these idiots. Is that... <laughs> You can sit on your armchair and you can talk about geopolitics. You can talk about wars there. If you've ever actually been to a war zone and seen how horrible it is and the fact is a loss of life, you think very differently to it. So a lot of these alpha male Armenian men who Mm -hmm. think that Johnny Rambo, you're not. You've never been to a war zone and you want to say, continue fighting. We've given up this land. We've given up that. You didn't get your ass over there and pick up a gun to go and fight. So who are you to really talk about it? Yeah, I understand that you've got heritage and you're Armenian. You're really upset. But the fact is that these young men who were on the front line who were getting constantly bombed, targeted by drones day and night, is they see it very differently. And in the documentary, we got a scene in Shushi, which was a crucial battleground. And the soldiers, after this is the day after the war, were very upset that they were told to stop fighting. They go, we wanted right. to fight on. And yeah, they did want to fight on, these men. But there's a bigger picture to all of this. And the fact is that these young men that wanted to fight, none of them, re- no one wants to die in war. It's, it's, it's a myth. Unless you're a jihadist who you think you're going to heaven with 72 virgins, it's very different. But for these young Armenian volunteers, and you've seen the scene, one of them goes, I'm a bank manager, I'm a mechanic, I'm an architect. Yeah. Look, these aren't professional soldiers. And it's very easy to sit in a foreign country going, oh, they should have kept on fighting. Mm-hmm. These men weren't equipped to fight. They didn't have the training. They didn't have the equipment. It was a losing battle in certain areas. And it is very sad. And Jimmy, I stand supporting the Armenian people. And I see, I've seen firsthand the, the desperation of it. But it's, I think it's very easy for some people that are miles away to then go, oh, we kept, you should have kept on fighting. Because when your home's under threat and constantly bombed and you're living there day in, day out, sometimes a peace deal probably better then that shall continue losing everything. And it's, 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 a, it's a tough one. And some people yeah. listen who are Armenian probably disagree with me about this. Um, but it's very tough um, mm-hmm. living there. And the Armenian race, because I spent a lot of time with them in the last year or so, <laughs> very, very di- um, diverse, very divided. I agree. What should happen in actual their own in the country of Armenia? Everyone's got their own opinion, especially because <laughs> of the diaspora. The diaspora are yeah. the... 
people who don't know are the Armenians who had to leave Armenia because of genocide in 1915. So they migrated around the world. And also from the fall of the Soviets or during the Soviet time, a lot of them moved around the world. You've got more Armenians in the diaspora living out of Armenia than actually physically in Armenia. Mm-hmm. It's crazy when you think about it. Right. Uh, so you have a lot of opinions, a lot of people that want think they know best for the country of Armenia that aren't actually living in Armenia. Yeah. And after war, and uh, throughout my whole time in war zones, is I've seen like people, as soon as the guns stop, people get on with their life. It's like, okay, the guns have stopped firing, let's get on with our life. And the people of Artsakh, people of Armenia, very quickly... They haven't forgotten about what's happened, but they very quickly had to resume their life, get on and go, okay, we need to go. We need to start moving here. We need to start working, producing money, feeding our families. And a lot of the diaspora were, were like very angry over people doing this, going, why are, they, why are they going? It's like, when you live in this kind of world, you need to be resilient. And the Armenian people, out of all the war zones I've been to, have been the most resilient people, as in that they've been knocked down, but they get back up again to continue what they need to do. Um, and I find that very important. I think it's massively important that people do that, um, rather than sit there feeling sorry for themselves. They go, yeah, mm-hmm. we've lost loads of land. It's not the first time this has happened to the Armenian people. They go, right, we need to move forward. We need to get on with what we need to do, reflect on what happened, and work out how we stop this happening again. Wherefore, I think some of the diaspora feel as though, oh no, we should just continue wanting to fight. We should continue mm. to it's, it's, it's easy to say that from the comfort of your own home. Oh, absolutely. You know, I, as soon as it started, I, I wish they signed that treaty within the first week, you know, in all reality. I, yes, I'm, again, it was, it is bittersweet, right? It is still our ancestral lens and so on, but so it's half of Turkey right now, current Turkey, right? Yeah. Let's get out. Like it happened. But the one thing I will say, sorry to interject, is um, is that yeah, some people do say they should have signed a deal sooner. But then at the same time, this is obviously playing devil's advocate. If you signed away something at the beginning and didn't stand and fight, you might have lost more. So That's really true. Standing and fighting, the Armenians probably prevented a bigger loss than what they did, even though they had a massive loss with over 5,000 men dying. Even on my Instagram the other day, I, I, I just I posted something about like for 20, well, 18 years fighting in Afghanistan, the British, and we were very heavily fighting. We lost 654 men, Americans over 2,000 in all these years of heavy fighting. And then you think Armenia lost over 5,000 men in 44 days. That's massive in comparison yeah. to that, especially in the, you think the USA has got a population of 319 million, the UK 64 million, Armenia of a population two to three million for over 5,000 men. It's a massive proportion. It's, it's, and this is why this, important, this story is so important because the world didn't pay attention to what was going on. Well, pandemic and, you know, politics yeah. and elections okay. and you name it. And, that, and, that, and that's another thing. I don't want to go on to a rant, but um, it's talking about the media industry and I'm, I'm not a, conspiracy theories, I'm not saying that, but people need to be mindful that the news is a business. It's only driven through revenue, through mm. revenue selling advertisement commercials, as you guys call them. So they tell stories they think their audience want to see in order to, for them to watch commercials to then earn a revenue. So sure. when it comes to, for example, LA, there's a large population of Armenians there. So like, for example, Fox 11 will highlight more what's going on in Armenia because they've got an audience there. Right. Elsewhere, for example, in Washington, there isn't a massive audience of Armenians. Right. So when it comes to these stories, they're like, I wouldn't want to hear about it. It's not important. What, who cares about Armenia and Azerbaijan having a bloody war thousands of miles away? Right. They report on it because it's a business. And that's why things go unnoticed. Even now, you turn on the news, like in America, I was shocked with how many stories your news tell you about COVID. It's nonstop about oh COVID everywhere. I was like, wow, I need to go home. Even though our news does talk about COVID, it's not as intense as the right. USA. Um, <laughs> so I was like, wow, it's just that feeding you of that information. And when it comes to this, no one was interested in telling this story. And even as we speak now, there's a conflict going on in Yemen. There's famine and there's war going on in Ethiopia, Sudan. There's conflicts all over the world. And no one's talking about them because we don't really care. Yeah. And again, Comes to the simple thing as well. I was having this conversation with my dad the other day, actually, um, talking about malaria, and he were talking about death rates of COVID and stuff like that. And I was like, over four hundred thousand died of malaria last year. Mm. You know, four hundred thousand deaths. That we have a tablet that can prevent this from happening. No one really cares. But mm. when it comes to people in the West that start dying, it's now now all of a sudden it's the it's the world's ending. It's like we can't pick and choose what we want to talk about. Well, the news can pick and choose, but I think very much so is that stories like this, and the, that's why I think the documentary is so important, was it touches on a story that no one else is talking about. Mm-hmm. And even today, I was having my breakfast down in town with my little dog, and I was wearing a 45-day T-shirt, 
And the guy sat next to me on the table, a British guy, was like, what's, what's your T-shirt for? And I explained to him, he's like, wow. He goes, I didn't even hear about that war. He's right. like, I'm going off now to watch the documentary. Thank you very much. And that's what it is, is building awareness um, for people to go, actually, yeah, I didn't know about that, but I am interested and I want to hear more about it. Because if it mm-hmm. happens People then can say, well, actually, yeah, I know about this country called Armenia and Azerbaijan. I've heard about the war before. Um, and now I'm going to say something about it. Right. I mean, right now, sounds terrible. I mean, in the United States, you know, the land of the free and it has the most polarized and slash curated media, essentially. Right. That's as ridiculous as it sounds. And people know Armenians through lens of Kardashians, which is so unfortunate. We haven't watched the documentary yet. We've tried to reach out to them so many times. Right. And and that's it. And until their until their documentary came out, I don't think they could have point Armenia on the map. Right. So and here we are in you. I mean, I live in the United States and occasionally people like, oh, you have an accent. Where are you from? Armenia. Oh, like the Kardashians, but not like the Kardashians. (laughs) Let's clarify this. But it's, it's unfortunate that uh, where people's attentions go to nowadays, right? Uh, yeah, where social media is so... Is that's so, it, yeah. The nature of what it is, and that's the world we live in. We live in a world yeah. where we consume information. We have so much information at our disposal, but we don't actually see all that, that information or that content. Because once again, we are all product. We are a consumer of information. We are all an algorithm. For example, if you go onto your social media, you're an algorithm. They they show you like I watched a documentary the other day on mountain climbing. Now, through that was on Netflix. On my Instagram, I'm just getting suggested posts about mountains. I don't even like mountains. Why are you <laughs> suggesting mountain climbing stuff to me? Um, and that's the way it works. And it is it's very sad that the fact is we have so much information at our disposal, but we only limit it in how much we get. And I was saying mm. to my I've got a 13-year-old son, and I was talking to him about his homework. And I was like, back in the day, I used to have to go to the library, go find my library card, go to the library, sit there, find a book, sift for a book, find that little bit of information. I go, you've now got this device in your hand that has every bit of information you could possibly need beyond. I go, you mm. don't understand how lucky you are to have that, that library of information at our disposal. But people are limited on what they actually they use it for because mm. people it's not i wouldn't say it's ignorance is if you don't know about something you don't know about something it's just it's not what it's just one of the thing and i think with the documentary world and that's what i try to do is raise awareness that people go actually i'm going to google about this i'm going to google mm-hmm. about google about the 90s war that you mentioned earlier and find out what happened and why it happened knowledge is power i think it's very important that people educate themselves and remain active mi- mindfully rather than just thinking oh what was kim kardashian posting today Right. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Well, there is no lack of information, like you said. And I think and I almost, and I could be so wrong about this, but I personally think that evolutionary us as species, we are not advanced enough to consume information at this rate. And yet we are. So we're frying our brains on a daily basis. But this is the thing is how many of us people listen to this, sit there in the evening on the, on the sofa, just scrolling through the same things on Instagram and Facebook. It's like, you've looked at that. It's the same things. You're just scrolling for the sake of muscle memory, just going through it. And, uh, and I, the amount of time I spend on social media, I think to myself, I'm writing a script for a movie at the moment as well. And I'm thinking I spent over two hours, if not more scrolling through Instagram today, I could have spent that two hours writing or reading. Um, mm. And I think, yeah, it's a sad world that we live in that that's what we've come to, that we are slaves to the devices that we use. Um, that's true. But yeah. Well, yeah, no, I, I, I'm, <laughs> I agree. And honestly, I've, I've always liked documentaries. It just, just in general, I did, because to me, while documentaries were great ways many times to spread conspiracy theories, they also are the most accurate way of spreading actual accurate news and true human side of things oftentimes has been my experience. Movies are fictional more so, even though the ones based on true stories. Whereas with the documentaries, there's this raw emotion, especially in the kinds that you've made that comes through that is, you know, through the movie, it's a bit different. That's not acting. That is the truth. That is the honest, raw emotions that come out of those interviews, you know, with these people in the moment, like you said, you know, people were burning their houses so they don't leave them to, you know, 
um, to the enemy. Some of those came from 1992 because people had to leave their homes, like my grandparents, with within like hours notice. They didn't have a week to pack. They had hours notice. My grandparents, they thought they're coming back to their home. They're just going to safety. And, you know, they left, right? So there's there's background stories that sort of lead to where they are. Um, in any case, but none of those moments come through any other way, you know, while social media is, I so hate social media. <laughs> and yet it is a necessary evil in many things, uh-huh. right? So that's where you started yours. I mean, you started doing Instagram lives, right? As you were there. Yeah, and the thing is reporting people, this. People follow my work through social media from the war zones. And right. It's, it's, so really, like you say, it's a necessary, necessary evil is that social media is good and it's bad. It yeah. has its very good positives and it has its, its evils. Um, so it's something that we, we can't live with, well, we, yeah, can we live without? That's probably a bit shallow to say, and we can't live <laughs> without it. But it's, it's part of life. It's part of our society now. And and I think that's why this documentary was so successful in the support that I had making this documentary is because me as a British guy in a war zone through social media, showing people sat at their home thousands of miles away going, I can have instant access to what is going on as eyes mm. and ears on the front line through this channel here. So for a lot of people that... That was mind blowing. Who've never seen a war played out through social media? This is not the first war played out through social media. Syria, the war in Syria, the war in yeah. Iraq, not the um, 2003 version, but later in Iraq, and also in Ukraine. So a lot of people are like, "Wow, I've now got eyes and ears." And for me, it was very touching because a lot of people send me messages and talk to me about uh, my work and stuff. Like during the war, is People were telling me they used to go round to their grandparents' home and their grandparents were like, what's a meal doing today? What's going on in, in, in outside today? What's a meal saying? And grandparents were like watching through their, their grandchildren's phones my stories and my posts. And mm. um, for me, that's really touching. The only issue I have is I'm very sarcastic. I spent spent 12 years in the military, which makes you very sarcastic. <laughs> I'm also British, makes you even more sarcastic. So through my, I do a lot of jokes. And I think a lot of people who've never been to a war zone who've never been in the military, doesn't understand the dark humour within a dark place. There's fun, there's there's jokes to be made, even in a horrible and dark place. And some people who've got a stick up their backside don't understand that. They don't realise that soldiers make jokes. And when I'm with the Armenian soldiers on the front line, they're making jokes, like the guy Chuck Norris, the soldier. They, there's a drone right. flying over. They've, they've had a firefight earlier. Do you mean one of the guys was injured and everything, but they're still joking, they're still laughing, because that is the way... And when you've got people thousands of miles away, why is this British guy making jokes? It's like, well, your soldiers are making the jokes also. It's it's part of the humour of what goes on in war zones because war isn't all black and it's not all bad. Mm. I've seen some brilliant moments and some touching moments in war zones because it unites people, brings people together. Mm-hmm. Like you're saying about the Armenians, that resilience and stuff. So there, there, it isn't all doom and gloom in war. There's a there there be some magical moments I've had, and like you see in the documentary, is the guys burning their homes down, and then you've got them along. You, we put, turn the camera around a bit, and then we're on the side of the road cutting up water bottles, drinking moonshine, vodka, and drinking stale bread, yes. and everyone stood around. They've just burnt their homes down. They've lost their whole, yeah. whole their lives, their livelihoods, and they're still making jokes and they're laughing and they're going, "Yeah, things are bad, but." Things could be worse. So within my social media, that's why I try to do. I show the human side. I show the, the funny side. I make some jokes. So, yeah, it's, it's part of it. What I do is to show that human side of it. And a lot of people appreciated that, because mm. especially with this war, all wars are surrounded by misinformation and disinformation and propaganda. When you're seeing firsthand through social media someone who's there reporting on it, you're you're bypassing a lot of the bullshit from the government. Mm-hmm. Do give a lot of bullshit, and it's part it's part and parcel of war. War we talk about in the documentary is disinformation as part of warfare, the information war. Um, so a lot of people were having like that access of the eyes and ears, and actually feeling some comfort to go. Actually, I can see what's going on, even though it's just one perspective. They can see a little bit more. Um, for me, so it's really heartwarming for me that I gave some people some comfort. Um, on what was going on during the war, during the hard times. Wow, there's a lot there. So. Let's talk about a little bit about um, some of the things you just said, you know, the the whole disinformation, the propaganda and, you know, all of the misleading information that just kind of gets poured into the social media to uh, news and so on. And my personal experience with this was when this all started, I made one singular post without bashing on anybody, just, hey, there's this thing happening in Armenia, right? And I did that after the day I called home and my mom said, 
you know, your brother came home and said, get my military clothes ready. I'm waiting for a phone call. And it was, I can't describe the feelings that just came through. You know, I just took me back to when I was 12 and my dad had to go, you know, with that said, I was like, oh my God. So I, I just wrote this post and I got hate mail on my instant messages from people I don't know and all Turkish and Azerbaijani and so on and all kinds of profanity and you name it. And I'm like, okay, all right, that's strange. I'm nobody. And I put one post, you know, just because it had hashtag Armenia strong, I think I was kind of, you know, what led to that, right? With that said, I cannot, I cannot imagine the backlash you're getting. So what that side of things has, has looked like, you know, from uh, Turkish and an Azerbaijani side? I block people very quickly now. I got so, so do I. I got a lot of hate from Turks and Azeris. I just blocked them. But the, Instagram is brilliant at the moment because they've got a feature where if you block, so what, a lot of people have many several accounts they use. Um, a lot of these shows. Sure. Um, so if you block one account, it blocks all of their IP accounts. So any account they set up under the nice. same email, it blocks them all. So that got rid of it very quickly. I didn't start coming under attack from the Armenians, and I actually get more attack from Armenians. Mm. Hey, do from Azeris and Turks because I block all of them. They, so sad. So I get it from the other side, um, which oh. is very. I don't get it from people living in Armenia. I get it from the diaspora generally who live in America. Oh, that's, that's where just... a lot of the hate comes from. Like I've had several death threats from them. Yeah, and it generally is the same sort of people. Is is them the boys who still live with their mum? <laughs> They're an alpha male who drive around in the BMW um, mm-hmm. and they, I, I say something, they don't like it and they, they take offense to it rather than looking at the bigger picture. They're just gun ho, just idiots as such. So, yeah. yeah. The, the, the issue you've got is when it comes to social media and like you experience, you try to reason with people, you try to talk to them about, well, I said this because I want to explain X, Y, and Z. They're not interested in hearing X, Y, and Z. They just want to hear X. So, what they, it gets to a stage where they screenshot what you write. They then post the bits that they that falls into their narrative and aligns with them. So then discredit you even more. And then you block them and then they screenshot that you've blocked them and go, look, I caught him. He's a spy. He's a Turkish spy. I caught him. And look, oh he's blocked God. me to reinforce their, their narrative. It's, it's just constant. The more high profile <sighs> you get, the more hate you get. And um, the brilliant thing is since the films come out and people, thousands of people have seen the documentary, there's been a lot less hate because these people are now a bit scared when they post something about me. People go, well, no, actually, I've watched that documentary and it's a brilliant documentary highlights. Yeah. So uh, slowly a lot of them are disappearing. But yeah, it's, it's, we all we all experience it. It's social media, it's like blocking someone. If me and you don't like each other, in the street, I'm not going to stop to talk to you. I'm just going to, it's the same as social media, just block people. If you don't like them, they're not giving anything positive to your day. Just get rid of them. Who mm-hmm. cares? They, they soon disappear um, into the ether. Um, because we don't really need that negativity yet because there's so right. much out there. And I think what it is, is before social media, people people would have to come to your face and tell you something or send you an email. So it's like long-winded. It's very easy to do a tweet or do a, an Instagram story like mm. or a message on Facebook. It's very easy. It's very instant. We all do it very instantly. We say things in haste, very quick bang, and it's out there. It's, it's gone. So it encourages people who wouldn't normally say things they wouldn't but they do it through social media because there's that that barrier between the us. The filter is gone. They wouldn't come to your face and say the things they say to you, but they'll do it over social media. And it's just like, <laughs> it, it, and that's why it's a, it's a massive problem mm-hmm. is where we come with the bullying and stuff. People can come into your home environment, manipulate how you feel about things. You could be sat on the toilet <laughs> or on the sofa, lying in bed, and you've got hate coming to you. It's like, wow, I don't even need to leave the house and people are going to hate me here. But yeah, I, f- I think... Anyone who's out there on social media is in the, is in the in the limelight. Is they get hate? Everyone does. We all know mm. someone. That, we all know a Karen that will just be angry at anything you say, no matter how <laughs> you say it. Um, so I think these people don't worry about them. Just block them. Yeah. It's like your hair. Your hair looks great today. Yeah. Is ninety nine people can say to you how great your hair look? One person says, "Yo, your hair doesn't look too good today." You don't care about the ninety nine. Like, Why is that one person not like my hair? And I think it's the psychology of the, how the human mind works. Goes, yeah. Why do you focus on that one negative person rather than the ninety nine right. positive? It's it's crazy how how our brains work. So yeah, it's just forget about that one percent and concentrate on the ninety nine. 
That's true. One of the things that happened in DC, um, I mean, that's where I came. I mean, I'm in Maryland, so that's yeah, 30 yeah. minutes away so. from DC. So that was the easiest for me to come. And of course, I came with a few of my friends uh, to watch the movie. As we approached the movie theater, there was this big box truck thing parked in front of it. And very disturbing imagery of dead people, children. I, did, I didn't even look at it. I'm like, oh, that. What, what is that? And we just kept going. It didn't stop us. Later on, as we walked in and, you know, found out that was put there by, you know, the opposition, essentially, right? The, was it Azerbaijani or the Turkish embassy that put, put uh, Azerbaijani embassy basically told the movie theater or commanded not for them not to air the movie because it's propaganda. Of course, that didn't go through. So now they just rented this thing and just put it in the middle of DC street and, uh, you know, viewing this imagery and it, Nobody was looking at it. You know, I'm approaching a movie theater to see this thing. It didn't catch my eye. I saw it and I just moved right past it. And, but, you know, I'm like, that's okay. Well, yes. that's interesting. So we found out because we, we're, we're totally independent as documentary, me and my producer, who's mm-hmm. from LA. So for our tour, we were hiring theaters ourselves. We're throwing up theaters for our team, mm-hmm. booking them, arranging, organizing. So we, we booked one in DC, uh, the one you came to. And then, when we turn up on the night, there was that truck across the road with a big LED screens all around right. it, showing some disturbing images. That there's areas obviously here that we're here. We spoke to the manager, and he goes, "For two weeks, I've had phone calls every day from the Azerbaijan consulate telling us to cancel the theatre, cancel your screening." And we're like, "Why haven't you told us this?" He goes, "Was that the same reason I told them we've got a contract with you? They're saying it's propaganda. We've said we've got a contract with you. You've invited your own guests along. We can't stop it." So then, in the end, because they couldn't stop it, they then pay for this truck for three hours. Even a driver didn't know why he was there. He was, I've been told to park here and just, and the thing is what they've done, and this is, this is sanctioned from government level, from consonant level, that they hired this truck for three hours to try to discredit our documentary. Mm-hmm. And they were circulating through it pictures of dead children. Mm. And it was, it was shocking. And the fact is that a consulate representing a government and a country would do this. What was also very shocking is some of these pictures that they were circulating of dead children wasn't in fact dead Azeri children. It was dead Syrian children. From the I was Syrian just war. about to say that. I thought it was about Syrian because some yeah. of the images looked familiar. And I'm like, why is this here? What this yeah. has to do with anything? I, I it yeah, it's disgusting. The fact yeah. is that they were, used, they were blatantly claiming that our documentaries propaganda while using propaganda to discredit mm. us. And it, it's the length they would go to. It's unreal. Luckily, we didn't have much protest across the whole tour. Mainly it was DC. And even that was just a quiet protest, really. Yeah. If anything, it, it elevated our profile because people started talking about it. Media wanted to cover <laughs> right. that story. So right. They've done a favour, but in promoting, really, they right. been kept, so it backfired on them. But yeah, this is like the level it's coming to. And obviously, during the war, uh, the diaspora around the world's done a lot of protests. And the Zaris were paying for these, these trucks to turn up to... Mm. All these events and so they are very they're on the ball they're watching what's going on they're listening to everything and of course like my personal security is is is, is an issue because i do get a lot of threats from people and what people don't realize is i'm a storyteller i'm telling i make documentaries to tell stories you haven't got to agree with it it's the form of art it's an art form don't agree with it just watch mm. it don't agree with it okay i don't agree with that and then say you don't agree with it but there's no need to be hateful there's no need to with acts mm. of violence um, and i think that's the world that we live in now that it's just too easy for people to say things and think there's no consequence to it it's like your artwork in in the back is going right. oh, i don't agree with that picture there it's like okay cool you've done the picture you've made something it's that's your art that's your point of view, essentially, yeah, to, to know, the event uh, that happened. So, but you did try to approach the Azeri side as well, right? To at least get perspective from that side. So, yeah. So I, I spoke to the Azeri embassy in London and said, mm-hmm. right, uh, this is why we're filming. Um, I said to him, I'm making a documentary from the perspective of Armenians, but it'd be great to get your perspective as well. They then sent me an email back saying, we just want to, we know about your documentary. You've illegally entered into Nagorno-Karabakh. You've broken international law by illegally entering through the Armenian side. Uh, we declined to give you a face-to-face interview. If you want to send us email, if you want to send us a list of questions, we'll consider answering them for you. So I sent them, them and one of the questions was like, are you saying that I'm now banned from Azerbaijan and Turkey because you're saying I broke international law? They never replied back to me. But then at that stage, when I reached out to them, we were doing... I was looking to get Armenian political figures to give their opinion as well. And then I got to the stage where I thought, 
No, let's get rid of all these political people. No politician on this earth ever speaks the truth. Let's get rid of these idiots. They, they don't represent the people uh, majority of the time. Let's just get people telling the story. So from there, I just scrapped all the political agenda. I thought there's mm-hmm. no politics in it. Let's tell a human story from the perspective of the people. And I think that's more powerful than having like the, the prime minister or the president or someone telling the story. It's, right. it's, not, it's not interesting. Um, so, yeah, we just cut all ties with everyone. We had like generals that wanted to go on camera. And we're like, no, sorry, we're declining an interview with you. It's just because it's not worth it. Like I was saying, mm-hmm. is they're only going to tell you what they, they, they want to tell you. But I think it's... Getting stories from a mother, from a soldier, from a wife, I think from children, I think that's more powerful in the story that we're telling. Mm, 100%. And you know, all of this you just said, it just kind of brought back a few memories for me. I mean, my my mom and dad both were born in a um, region called Shahumyan that was part of Nagorno-Karabakh at the time until, you know, 1912, uh, where, you know, they ended up losing those lands. But during the summers, we would visit them a lot, you know, and I absolutely loved going to the market with my grandfather to buy fruit and such. And it was in corridors of sushi, basically, you know, at the time, the biggest markets were there, right? Bazaars is what they call them, where all the, it's like the biggest farmer market you can think of, like a few days a week, they they would come with their goods, you know, their figs and pomegranates and fruit and nuts and whatever else. And half the market were Azeris and half them were Armenians and living together in this kind of harmony, you know, so on a huge human level. And we had, like my grandparents had friends who were Azerbaijanis and they're very nice people. You know, mm-hmm. again, I'm talking about the actual people, you know, not the government, not, not all yeah. of that. And that's before, obviously, um, Azerbaijan, I think closed off the country quite a bit as far as the information goes and became more curated and polarized and so on. I mean, you know, I mean, I think every country has that to a degree, but I think their children today's, today's youth, hasn't kind of grown up, I think, with more accurate information about the events that happen. So there's a lot more hate that's being injected, interjected into this, this younger generation. Not to say that Armenians are not, especially those macho men that are living outside of the country. <laughs> I have no idea what it feels like to live under those conditions when country goes in blockages and things like that. And, you know, and half your family's fighting. But it goes back to the people, you know, to the core. I don't think any nation really or any mother wants to send their sons to the war or fight or die or any of those things, you know, it's, um, it's unfortunate that it's basically this political warfare. And honestly, I think if you keep digging to the core, I mean, at at the end of the day, it all ends with Turkey and Russia and some other big political players, you know, and the small countries basically paid a higher price than this. Armenia and Azerbaijan included, you know, sad as it sounds. So the unfortunate thing is I don't think there's a solution to the, to this conflict quite yet, is it? People are people. Wherever you go in every war zone I've ever been to is humans are all the same, no matter what colour your skin is, what religion yes. you what politics you have. We are all the same deep down. We all we all want the same things from life, really. We want to live in security. We want to have peace to a certain degree. A majority of us, of course. is Where it gets diluted is from religion. There are two main running factors that divide people on this on this earth is like you're saying about azeris is azeri and armenian are very similar yeah mm-hmm. you have different, you have different you want azeris and muslims you're christians you have different gods but you're, you're the same people like really enough same as to i'm my father my family is syrian in Syria, is Christians lived alongside Muslims, which was Sunni or Shia or mm-hmm. Alawites, and then you would have Jews mixed in there. You would have all people in Syria. No one in Syria for years would be fighting each other because what God they believed in or where they lived. Mm-hmm. What happened was the politics and the brainwashing of the civil mm-hmm. war that divided yeah. That then you have people that were neighbors and cousins fighting against each other because they believed in something different now because they've been manipulated into believing that. And it's the same as Armenians and um, Azeris. Is like you're saying, the mothers, no mother wants to send their son to war. And even 45 Days, the Fight for a Nation documentary, is an Azeri mother could watch that and go, I could feel the pain of that woman from the other side. I could feel the pain of her sending her son there or the wife who lost her husband and go, that could have been me losing my husband. Or I have lost my husband, so I can relate to it. Mm-hmm. And that's what we, why we try to edit this documentary that is relatable to everyone. Everyone can go, that could actually be me or that could be the other side. Rather than thinking it's only a one-sided story. It's not. It's like you're saying, even the Zaris are victims in this war as well, as in the people against mm-hmm. their government. 
governments do control things very heavily and um, and it is dangerous and that's what divides people and that's what that's what we don't hate you you could have a black child and a white child playing there's no reason for them to hate each other mm-hmm. no reason whatsoever is then when you start putting extra things in it to layers on it you put the politics in it you put the race into it that's when you manipulate people to go actually yeah I don't like that kid because um, we, none of us are in, born that way to hate none of us designed to hate I have no reason to hate you yeah. I've got five reason to hate you and when you're manipulated by society to that it changes things and i think that's the, the issue we've got here and that's what with my documentaries and my art form i try to do is break down them boundaries to go well look there's no reason have a bit of understanding have some empathy you haven't got to have sympathy but let's have some empathy and what went on here and for our tour as we were touring the usa We've seen a lot more black people coming to watching the documentary. I was like, I was like really surprised to see so many people from the black community coming to watch the documentary. And I'm like, ah, and I'll talk to them afterwards. I'm like, where did you hear about this? And they go, I've got a friend who's Armenian who told me to come and watch this because they're telling us about their struggle, Black Lives Matters movement. That a lot of these um, people from the black community were saying to me, we thought we were one of them. I remember in Hollywood at the end when we done another one at Chinese theatre, he, he said to me, he goes, I thought we were the only people that are suppressed in the world. He goes, I've now watched this documentary. Right. I've now realised that there's a small country called Armenia that's been under threat by its neighbours for years. He's like, I'm ashamed I didn't know about this. He goes, mm. I was so insular that I thought only black lives matter. And he goes, now I realize that Armenia's lives matter. Even Azeri lives matter. Everyone's lives matter. And it was it's rewarding for me as a filmmaker to hear people go, actually, they're talking about this. And it's, it's generating conversation. Right. That people want to learn. People want to educate themselves to go, actually, there's more to it than just what goes on in my little social circle. Right. And I think that's the most important thing in, in the art form is that it shows people there's, there's more to it. And if, if you don't understand something, you have an ill-formed opinion on it. When you know about something, you can form a better opinion about it. I think that's what information is key. People need to see what's going on and see from the other side as well to go, actually, yeah, I now I, I now understand that. But if I don't right. agree with it, I don't agree with it for these reasons. Right. I don't want to fight you over this. <laughs> and I think, yeah. especially, the, I, I fought for years in Iraq and Afghanistan, and you've just seen what happened in Afghanistan. The Taliban have taken it back over. We just wasted our time there for and all them deaths of civilians, soldiers, local Afghan soldiers. We didn't achieve anything. It, the way I look at war now is that we don't achieve anything. Mm. In, in the invasion of Iraq, all we did was allow terrorism to flourish in Iraq. We were part of the reason Islamic State and Al-Qaeda managed to have such success in that region through our invasion. I don't think the power of the gun is as powerful as people think it is. Short term, yeah, not long term. I think Mm. diplomacy is the the way forwards. And I think by generating conversations, getting people talking, um, it's the only way to prevent these Mm. crises, these wars from happening. 100% 100% agree. It's funny. Um, there's an Armenian author that said uh, the most powerful powerful weapon is the pen. Well, this was the time with no camera, obviously. So nowadays it seems like, you know, the cell phone is the most powerful weapon. But yeah. same idea, right? Recording, reporting yeah, definitely. and spreading awareness and having conversations. I think at the end of the day, whether we agree or not, it's at the end of the day, it's not about having a conversation for sake of agreeing uh, because at that point now it almost feels like this power struggle. Somebody got to lose. Nobody has to lose right we can have a conversation yeah. and agree and disagree or agree to agree and 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 move on and but we definitely have a better perspective and compassion as you said i mean that's that's what's i think missing in today's society quite a bit you know through political and religious and just all of these things and yeah i, I was out with yeah. i was out with yeah. some friends last week and we we're talking about the palestine and israeli um, mm-hmm. conflicts and situation i had a different view to two of my friends i was sat with and we didn't turn we didn't end up fighting over it we didn't get aggressive about it or storm off we, we sat there as adults hearing both sides and perspective and actually by engaging in conversation you actually learn mm-hmm. so I go okay I didn't know about that yeah so now I know something more and I was like okay there's nothing wrong with changing your opinion mm-hmm. thing. people think it's like a failure that you've changed your opinion is we change our opinions all the time I change my opinion on certain foods or certain places there's nothing wrong with changing your opinion it's growth yeah exactly and it comes with education it comes with knowledge and I think too many people are worried to go well I've said that I've got to stick to that it's like no mm. you can change your opinion you can adapt to it that person that you thought was horrible actually you now realize they're not as bad as you thought they are just change your opinion it's fine mm. um, I think it's some people are very stubborn. And I think when it comes to governments and like even at the moment with the meeting, I think it happened. Where was where was where did Pashian and Alia for me? Was it in Belgium? Oh Belgium, yeah. 
Yeah. Just had a meeting there, the two leaders, and people were sending me pictures of them sat around the table going, this is disgusting. It's like, well, maybe diplomacy is the answer. Going back mm. to war, unless you're going to prepare to go pick up a weapon to fight yourself, right. if you're going to do that, by all means, support that. If you're not going to go fight yourself or send your children to go fight, I think maybe diplomacy is the way forward. So, yeah, I, I think it's a good sign people talk. Of course, we obviously, Chamberlain went and talked to Hitler and he came back with a bit of white paper and said, oh, we're never going to go to war. And then the Second World War started. So sometimes diplomacy yeah. doesn't work, but at times it does work. And I think it's really important that dialogue and conversations are made. It's worth a try. Definitely. Yeah. Wow. Um Thank you. I um, feel like I've taken a lot of your time today. I really appreciate that. I've got and, my dog uh, staring at me here. I, I, I see your dog passing in the background. I've hidden my kitten. I have a new kitten that is completely wild. It's hiding upstairs. Sarah. What is next right now about for the documentary, for the listeners, where they can watch the documentary, when they, where they can read more about this and find out more information and so on, if you can share. So, yeah, so at the moment it's on, people can rent it on Vimeo and that's, so what is it? I think it's, it's 9.99 and all the money generated from there helps us with our Oscars campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the time January we'll know if we're in or not. But yeah, through my social media, through Emil Geeson, follow it, see, I'm always updating where, what's going on, where we are at mm-hmm. the project mm-hmm. and stuff. So hopefully by the time people listen to this, we're in the last, last maybe five by then, but it's a long shot. We are the underdog. We are the only independent documentary up against netflix hbo oh really all the big companies who spend hundreds of thousands um if not tens of thousands on marketing we don't have that budget because we're we're a small um small team um so yeah we're gonna give we'll give it our shot hopefully we get selected hopefully the judges watch it and the voters and actually go yeah this is worth taking to the next level but Mm -hmm. the academy awards the the Oscars is very political. We know it's very political. <laughs> Much like everything else. Yeah, it's, it's very biased. Is that the voters have got their friends who works at Netflix and they go, okay, you know who what you're going to vote for. So we know that. So we, the Oscars campaign is a long shot. We know it's a stab in the dark. It's not the be or end all. But we're working on further distribution on how we're going to get it out to as many people as possible. Because really with this story, we want non-Armenians to watch it. We want them to go actually... I didn't know about this country, like the guy I met in the cafe earlier, to go, actually, now I've watched a 90-minute documentary. I know a little bit more here. And if there's a conversation generating on it, I'm, I've got something to say now. because right. I've seen. So, yeah, we're going to get it out to as many people as we can through um, distribution. And then I'm going to be... Yeah, and then I've got a few other projects I'm going to be start working in, in 2022 on. But as okay. I say... You got to throw enough shit at a wall for something to stick. That's like the film industry where you just you just got to throw ideas out there, throw scripts out there, and hopefully you get projects off the ground. But being independent is hard in this day and age. Is is try to get funding. That's the main key is funding everything. And and even us selling renting our documentary for nine ninety nine, and people going, why am I paying nine ninety nine for it? You just spent five dollars on a coffee. <laughs> so, so That's even my friends, I have to guilt trip my friends into paying to watch the documentary. I go, what do you think funds this project? What do you think puts a roof over my head? If we if we don't support the the independence, art mm-hmm. form start dying. And like I have a friend of mine, he he's a photographer and he keeps pirating all all the latest films. He's like, you need to watch this the film June. I go, it's not out yet. It's in the cinema. He goes, no, I watch it at home. I, I downloaded it, pirated. I go, you're killing the industry. <laughs> oh the my god. Toys. So yeah, to get money out of people to support is sometimes it's hard, especially when they are close to you. They're like, "Why am I paying?" Supporting the work we do. Oh, I'm, I'm your friend. It's like, yeah, if you're my friend, you shouldn't be even asking for a discount. You should be just. Support- you should buy two. Yeah, and that's the problem. <laughs> it's a tough one. Yeah. Oh, I bet. Well, I um, genuinely thank you for for doing this and really shedding so much light on on the nation, on the country, on the event and on, on all of this. I was humbled by seeing that, that this, this British guy actually cared enough about this to go film this thing and just to talk about this, you know, and genuinely thank you. And I, fingers crossed, you know, long shot, be it as it may, you never know. And whether Oscars happens or not, it's not even that. It's, um, I think the fact that it's out there and people are talking about it, I think is important. It's the beginning, right? I mean, we got to start somewhere, you know, sure. hopefully. Yeah. 
No, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you so, so much. Well, I am going to keep my fingers crossed and keep watching and see what happens. And of course, I'll share all of the links to the show notes, including where people can rent the movie for the time being until it's, you know, produced a little for, or, or mass produced a little further. And best of luck, Emil. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Take care. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. That was it, you guys. So again, everything that we've talked about, perhaps, you know, alluded to as far as links and such, it is all in the show notes. So be sure to go there and pick up all those links to uh, the trailer, to the documentary, to some other podcast episodes and movies and films and whatnot. Other than that, that was it, you guys. I hope you stuck around. I hope you listened to it. I would love to know what your feedback on this is. If you have any questions, seriously, you know, ask away. Just DM me, you know, email me or text, whatever. But we're going to come back next time around with some awesome news about around floral business and such. So be sure to come back. We're coming back with business as usual with our next episode. Bye for now. Well, it's a wrap. Thank you everyone for listening, for tuning in to Viva La Floral Live podcast. We'll see you next week.